So the reading tonight can be found um, on page 949 in the Blue Church Bibles, and it's Haggai chapter 2, 10 to 19. So page 949. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The the priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate, And the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much for reading, Sarah. One of the fears I have when I'm preaching is that I may lose my place in my notes. Um, so I was encouraged when our Prime Minister had that problem earlier. But he managed, he was unperturbed, and he managed to uh, ram along without any notes. But then he's a politician and he's trained to do that. Um, but I, hopefully I won't have that experience tonight. Let me pray. Dear Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity to meet as your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom to read your word, to have it in our homes, Father. Uh, We're sorry that so often we neglect it. Father, we ask for your help this evening, that we might be attentive, that we might have a desire to hear from you, and that you would indeed speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If I was not preaching this evening, I would definitely need what I always need, a recap from last week. 
So just in case there are others like me, and also for the benefit of anyone who has not been with us over the last two weeks, let me explain the context of Haggai. I think it is Haggai, not Haggai. I've been listening to various um, pronunciations, but Haggai. Uh, The year is 520 BC, and it's 16 years since the Jews were given permission to return to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon. We know from Ezra chapter 1 that God prompted King Cyrus to let the people of Judah return, and the purpose of doing so was that they might build the temple. And yet 16 years later, hardly any progress has been made. It's true that the people did face opposition, but the main reason, uh, it seems, was that they did not see it as their priority. It could wait. First, for them, more importantly, was to establish themselves comfortably in their own houses. And so it was Haggai's task here, 16 years later, to get the people working on building the temple. And the book, Haggai, contains four pronouncements, four messages, uh, made over a period of just four months. His first message was to stir the people to start work again. And they responded. In his second message, which we heard last week, uh, in chapter 2, first part of chapter 2, he urged the people to be strong and to keep going. He reminded them that they were building a temple which God would fill with his glory. They may have been discouraged by the fact that they would never be able to build a temple anywhere near as impressive as Solomon's. But the Lord assured them that its glory would be greater. And so two months later, we get to this third pronouncement, uh, this evening's passage. Whilst there may not be a, a natural flow from the previous passages, the Lord's message is very clear. I think there are two key words as we look at this passage, cleansing and blessing. And it would be no surprise that I've chosen two headings. And if the first PowerPoint we may have, please. God wants to cleanse us. Unlike the earlier messages, here Haggai is addressing the priests. And he asks a couple of not very difficult questions. They were pretty simple questions for anyone, let alone priests. In verse 12, we get the first question. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does that become consecrated? Can food that is not ceremonially clean be made clean by coming into contact with meat that is consecrated? Answer, no. Hardly a tough question for a priest. So what about the reverse situation? Is that the same principle? We get that uh, second question in verse 13. Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Now, if you were to be consistent, 
if cleanliness and holiness cannot be spread, if they're not contagious, is that not also true of uncleanliness and defilement? And of course, that is not true. Fairly obvious, if you place one rotten fruit in a bowl of good fruit, you will certainly not end up with an entire bowl of good fruit. You'll very likely end up with an entire bowl of bad fruit. Will a person who has tested positive become free of their symptoms by close contact with and perhaps by embracing a person who doesn't have any symptoms? Obviously not. And will the other person soon find that they are positive? Quite possibly. Through these questions, God is firstly emphasising the true sinful nature of the people. A note uh, in verse 14, he refers to this people and this nation. He doesn't refer to them as my people. Their their sinful nature is no different to ours. And secondly, the Lord wants to emphasise that there's no means of holiness that can eradicate that sinful nature. Let's think about this sinful nature. The man in the street, or sorry, the person in the street, would say that most people, unless they commit a serious crime, they are essentially good. Yes, they will make mistakes, we all make mistakes, we do wrong things, sometimes deliberately, but nothing too serious. And often, they would offset those wrong things, their sins, by their good deeds. But the Bible and God has a totally different perspective. According to the Bible, we're all born with an inherently sinful nature. Our sin is not just the wrong things that we do. It is our very nature. Every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions and our flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. It pervades our whole being. It penetrates the very core of our being so that every part of us is tainted by sin. That explains Isaiah's conclusion. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. In Jeremiah we read, Man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The Bible also teaches us that we are born dead in transgression and sin. And because God knows our heart, he knows the motive for everything that we do. And even our good deeds may uh, even our good deeds may be the wrong motive. That if we are looking out of self-interest, um, that they would uh, even our good things would not be glorifying to God. 
We cannot be made holy by association. Either by association with the people we engage with or by association with the work we do. If you're in a small and local group, please don't look around the members of your group and feel that by being part of the group, their collective holiness will rub off onto you. Holiness is not transmittable. But in any event, we have that, they will have that same sinful nature. Likewise, do not think that being in a one-to-one with one of our ministry team uh, will enhance your standing before God, privileged though you are. You will certainly benefit from their teaching and wisdom, but you will not be made holy. I heard of a Christian who invited a friend to an evangelistic meeting. On the way to the venue, uh, the friend threw out the comment, Don't you know that my father was a vicar? The purpose of the comment, uh, spoken with enormous pride, was obvious. I really don't know why you've invited me to this evangelistic meeting. I already have religion in my blood. Thanks to my father. We might laugh at that, but it's precisely how many people think that they are right with God by virtue of their association with someone or something. They may not have a vicar in the family, but they may have studied theology at university. We may even encounter comments of that nature as we engage with people on Thursday evening. Let's move on to uh, verse 15. But as we, as we do so, let us remind ourselves again of Haggai's solemn words of verse 14. So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. This is quite a shocking statement that in God's eyes, whatever the people do and whatever they offer is defiled. And that is because they are defiled themselves. So could we have the second PowerPoint, please, uh, Andy? Here, Haggai looks back to what life was like for the people of Judah before he came on the scene three months previously. When in, in verse 16, when anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This reflects what we read in chapter 1, verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. Their harvests 
failed to meet their expectations. And why was that? What was the reason for the poor yields? Was it just a matter of bad luck? Not the right weather? Had they been negligent in not sowing at the right time? Or failing to water the seed or failing to harvest at the right time? No, the Lord had withheld his blessing. We can feel God's pain as those words were uttered. They reflect his compassion. You did not return to me. They remind us of the father longing for the return of the prodigal son, a picture of God himself longing uh, for that person, that son in that case, returning to him. And here, God is desperately sad that the people did not return to him. It reflects what the Lord wanted from his people more than anything else. He wanted the people to turn to him, to turn in repentance. Yes, he wanted the temple to be rebuilt, but he wanted it to be a work of the heart, not an act of outward religion not even an act of obedience simply to keep God happy, but to be a reflection of their love for him and their devotion to him. God detests the outward religion. And so Satan loves to deceive people into outward religion. Satan will first deceive us into thinking that sin is not really such a bad thing or such a serious thing. It doesn't really bother God unless it's a really big sin. But if Satan fails to achieve that goal, when people are disturbed by their sin, then Satan will play his next card to convince us that we have the remedy. The remedy lies in some religious act perhaps attend more regularly on a Sunday or a Thursday, perhaps offer to serve in a group, perhaps even to invite someone to something at Christ Church, perhaps to increase our giving to the church. Let us look at the final two verses. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on I will bless you. The question is asked, is there any seed left in the barn? And the answer to that is probably no. It is winter and the seed will be in the ground. And as yet, there is no sign of any fruit on the vine and the various trees. But there is a clear statement right at the end. God will bless them. From this day on, I will bless you. It is a promise from God, and God keeps every promise. 
To bless us is God's nature. He loves, he loves to bless us, but it's never deserved, never merited. It is always God's grace and mercy. As I was thinking about this, I was a question, is there any correlation between our obedience and God blessing us? If we are obedient to God, will he bless us? Well, if we live in disobedience to God, then we must not be surprised if he withholds blessing from us. But does God reward us if we do obey him and seek to live to please him? When we use the word blessing, we often think of material benefits or good health or perhaps blessing in our ministry. Obedience to God does not guarantee any such blessings. If that was so, a natural corollary would be that the absence of these blessings, and that would include suffering, would be the result of disobedience. That is clearly not the case. God is full of mercy and he does not punish us as we deserve. We need to rethink blessing, which includes peace, joy, the assurance of sins forgiven, and the knowledge that God is pleased with us. In Psalm 1 we read, uh, Psalm 1 assures us that if we delight in God's law, then we are blessed and he watches over us. There's no greater possible blessing than to be a child of God and to have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. It is kept in heaven for us. If you are a child of God, enjoy and celebrate that blessing and let that motivate you to strive for holiness and obedience to the one who in his mercy and grace granted that blessing. May we be people in whom God delights. Let me finish almost, almost by going back to that reference to the temple in verse 18. And the temple which was being built was a foreshadowing of Jesus. 550 years later, Jesus demonstrated that with him, the answers to those two questions asked of the priests in verses 12 and 13 were reversed. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what happened, we all know. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus, the Holy One, made clean the infected one. It was a physical healing, but Jesus has the remedy for the defiled heart too. So what is God say, saying to us today? 
the 28th day of the 11th month? Is he saying to one or more of us, you have wandered away from me, you need to turn back to me, you need to repent? Is he saying to one or more of us, although you have not turned away from me, how long will you persist in that particular sin or in your disobedience about something I'm saying to you? Is he saying to one or more of us, I don't want your defiled heart and your religious works. I don't want the labour of your hands, for they cannot fulfil what I demand. To quote words slightly amended from our last song. Is he saying to one or more, it is not sufficient to sing of the cleansing blood of Jesus as we have this evening. You need to ask for that cleansing for yourself. Let's take a couple of moments to consider what the Lord might be saying, whether any of those questions might be relevant to any one of us, and I include myself this evening. Um, I will lead in a prayer, a couple of moments of just reflection, and then David will introduce our final song. Almighty God, you stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus to cause him to return the people of Judah to rebuild the temple. You stirred Haggai to challenge the people. Father, today you stir people up. And if there are some here that you need to stir this evening, please do so. Please give each one of us a longing to be stirred, a longing to hear your voice and a responsive heart, mind and will. In Jesus' name, Amen. As John's just said, why don't we just take a couple of moments just to focus our thoughts on personal encouragements or challenges from those verses.